TorahCafe.com. I want to do this talk on lessons in life from Egypt and from leaving Egypt. To begin with, there is the idea that when we dedicate any kind of learning um, in somebody's merit, it's it's a, a big thing for them. And so because of that, I want to dedicate this talk, this learning to the complete an immediate and full healing of Rafal Shlomo ben Miriam. He is the 45-year-old husband of one of our former students, Chaya, and uh, and our friend. And he just needs a miraculous and complete and immediate recovery. So it should happen. And all those who are not well right now and who are suffering and who need healing should have that um, and and be able to go right back home, completely healed to their families. So, all right, so I want to go through these lessons. And as kind of a preface to this, it's interesting how the entire story of leaving Egypt, the entire retelling of our time in Egypt, in slavery, and then our exodus from that, is in the book of the Torah, which in English is referred to as Exodus, and yet in English, sorry, in Hebrew is referred to as Shemot, which means names. And there's something really powerful about that, how being able to leave something which constricts you and restricts you and enslaves you, you need to know who you are. You need a name. You need to know your name, you need to be able to use your name. And we see that part and parcel with slavery and enslavement of any kind is dehumanizing, taking away that name, you know, reducing people. When we look at our own history, if it was during the Holocaust, with we were, we were numbers, we weren't names, we weren't people, we weren't individuals. We were reduced to a number. When we lose our name, when somebody tries to strip us of our identity, how we connect to ourselves and how others know us, that is already, you know, kind of like the foundation of an enslaved reality. When our name is taken away, when we are kind of told you have no voice. Nobody is going to hear you. Nobody is listening. Nobody is going to believe you, which is why the holiday Pesach is Pesach, the speaking mouth, that our ability to speak, to scream, to say our names, to make sure the world knows our names. That is part and parcel of freedom. That is how we connect to our identity and it's how we ensure that others know who we are. So I want to begin with, let me actually find what I want to begin with. And this is something that obviously anybody who's listened to my talks has heard this, but lesson number one is the concept, no one escapes Egypt. 
we all go through this period of Egypt at some point in our lives. It is fair, I think, to say we are somewhat all in Egypt right now with this constrictedness, this restriction. The Hebrew word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, is the idea of Mitzar, of being in a state of enslavement, of constrictedness, of not being able to express who we are, of not having freedom, if it's freedom of movement, freedom of thought, freedom of expression. Right now, clearly our movement is limited, but we are fortunately still very free to think our thoughts, very free to express our thoughts. But the idea of Egypt is that it is something we all go through and recognizing and remembering that it is part of our journey as individuals and as a people, and that the same God who put us in Egypt is the one who takes us out. We see in the first of the Ten Commandments, which is already interesting because it's not really a commandment, it's a statement. It says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. The very first word, Anochi, for I, is an Egyptian word. It's already referencing Egypt and this place, this foreignness, this out of sorts and out of where our comfort zone and our ability to be ourselves is. And it says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. It is a statement, not a commandment, because it is, it is the predecessor to all the rest of the commandments. It is almost like the disclaimer. We're either good here, we're on the same page, we, you know, you get that I put you in Egypt, you needed to be in Egypt, and I took you out of Egypt. And we have this understanding, because if not, nothing else is going to matter. Nothing else is relevant. So it's not, what can I do to escape Egypt? It's, what can I learn from the Egypt I will be going through, or I have been through, or I am currently in? What is there to gain? How can I grow? How can I re-identify myself if my name has been taken away, if my voice has been taken away? How do I find that language? How do I discover who I am? How do I find my name? Because once I know my name and I can state my name, I can be free. And we even see that, interestingly enough, when we talk about any of the you know, 12-step programs, part of being able to acknowledge our issue, our struggle, our Egypt, and say it and know our name is the first part of healing, right? My name is, and this is who I am. And Sorry, not this is who I am. My name is, and I am A. Now, the one thing, and now is not the time to get into it, but that I would differentiate with that, is it's not my name is, and I am, but, and I struggle with. We are never identified by our struggle, by our challenge, by our weakness, by our addiction, by our problem. It is something we are challenged by and struggling with and going through and must be dealt with and must be healed, but it is not our identity. Our identity is something much, much deeper. And that's why it actually says with our names, my name is it says that the one time in our lives we are blessed with prophecy is when we name our children. That that name that we give is prophetic. There is something so deep to it, regardless of what our reasons may be, 
there is something so inherently powerful in the name and in the potential of the name. And just to actually bring this by, when I said the name that I'm having in mind as I'm giving this class, a name was added to his name. His name, up until recently, was Shlomo. Now it's Raphael Shlomo. He should be healed. And then the name Shlomo, which, by the way, Rabbi Ginsburg, our rabbi, when I asked him for a blessing for his healing, explained that Rafoa Shlomo is actually the same words as Rafua Shalema, a complete and total healing. But that the names are so powerful that when we add a name, and that's why you'll see very often a name is added for a man like Rafal healing or Chaim life or for a woman, Chaya, life, that we're giving extra power to that name, that when we say their name, we're already blessing it. We're giving it something so powerful and substantial because using that name and calling somebody by their name, it's their name, son or daughter of, right? And bringing in where they come from is so essential to healing. So that's number one. Number two is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? So uh, this, this class will have some dating in it from the songs that may have been popular at the time when I was originally putting it together. But so it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. By the way, wow, so great to see you guys on here. Um, Donnie Konofsky, I'm, I'm so honored. Maya, Roz, Beth, everybody who's been here. And it says in regards to our slavery, it says, um, you know, that the more we were afflicted, the more we multiplied and grew. That the choice we have within that constrictedness, within the trauma, within the challenge, is that we can allow it to completely beat us down. We can allow it to paralyze us. We can allow it to stop growth. Or we can say, you know what? That is going to be my motivation to work that much harder, to do that much more, to accomplish so much more, to push through, to grow, to to expand because of these limitations, right? That it's actually, and we see this, that very often constrictedness forces us to grow, right? We see, um, I think it's, I don't know if it's um, the lobster. It's one of the shell animals that basically, as when do they finally break out of the shell? When do they finally regrow something bigger is when it becomes too cramped. When is the baby born? When, when there's no more room, right? So sometimes having boundaries, limitations, these restrictions give us an opportunity. We can't get comfortable. We're so uncomfortable that we are forced to break out. We are forced to do more. And if we allow it, if we don't just, you know, give in or give up to what that is. So we can allow the difficulties to stop us or can use them as an impetus and motivation to do that much more. And we all have that opportunity right now, right? We While we're home, use it. Use it to connect to your family. Use it to work on all those projects that you never had time for. If I only had extra time, if I was only at home more, if I wasn't running around, now we have it. Right. So now we can use, even though it is not what we would have chosen and it's not what is, 
you know, ideal or the circumstances we want, there are opportunities within that restriction to still expand and grow. From here, we have passion can overcome fear. Lesson number three, by the way, for anybody who wants these lessons, I can um, email them to you. Passion can overcome fear. If we believe strongly enough, we won't even see the potential barriers. And the example I always give with this is that there are times we are in very unlikely and uncomfortable situations. And yet, you know, if we believe in something strongly enough, the barriers will disappear because of how we are speaking about it, fighting for it, allowing it to happen. Again, back to speech. And we see when it comes to speech that, you know, there was a, a restriction, a horrific decree that was put by Paro onto the Jewish people that basically was that all Jewish boys were to be murdered, that when a Jewish male was born, he was to be thrown in the river. And so many couples separated. They stopped having intimacy and sexual relations because they didn't want to risk a boy that could then, you know, have to be killed. And so Miriam, who was a young girl at the time, thought this is awful, this is wrong, and decided to have a talk with her parents about their intimate life because that's comfortable, you know, like, hey, mom, dad, you know, I, uh, I think you should go and make some babies. And that's basically what she did. And she made the argument that Paro decreed that the baby boys are to be killed. If you stop having children, you've decreed that the baby girls also are not going to be alive. So you have an obligation, a responsibility to continue bringing babies into this world you know, because you could give birth to a girl. So was it her place? Was it comfortable? Was it appropriate? It didn't matter. She was right. She was passionate. She knew what had to be done. And so she shared her thoughts and her opinions, and she was listened to. And from that, Moses was born. So clearly... um you know, it led to exactly what it needed to. And that was the approach she took. From here, we have learned to be flexible and switch roles. And following the birth of Moshe, we see a really intense switch in roles, right? Here we have Miriam, first of all, who is the daughter, who acts, so to speak, like the parent in it guiding her parents, encouraging her parents, parenting her parents as to what they need to be doing. So that's somewhat of a role switch. We then have Yochevet, who is the mother who gives birth to Moshe, to Moses, who now, when she has to, so to speak, give him away because he's supposed to be drowned in the Nile, ends up with an opportunity to become his wet nurse. So the mother is now the wet nurse. The daughter is the midwife. The daughter also becomes the negotiator 
to come up with a plan to save Moses's life, to save her brother. And so she goes to the woman who has saved her brother's life, who is the daughter of Paro, who is there, who is supposed to be there under negative pretenses. She represents everything that's bad, but she actually saves his life. So everybody's kind of switching roles. Everybody's doing something uncomfortable and unnatural and yet exactly what needs to be done at the time. And I had a friend, I have a friend, who had a very, very difficult situation and shared like kind of a lesson that I always think of with this idea. And it was a number of years ago, we were living in Israel and uh, she still actually lives in Israel. She gave birth incredibly, incredibly early. At the time, no baby that had been born that early in the pregnancy even survived much beyond the birth. Her baby did, and for a number of weeks following the birth, was miraculously kept alive in the hospitals um, with tremendous care in their NICU department. And he actually ended up living six weeks. He unfortunately passed away, and he passed away Erev Pesach, the eve of Passover. Um, and we were very close during this time, you know, in the hospital together, trying to to help with what we could during this very challenging and difficult period. And it was actually amazing that this baby had even lived six weeks, but it was clearly a traumatic, traumatic situation. She lost her child six weeks after he was born, heading into Passover. The entire time that he was alive, she was pumping milk, hoping to be able one day to feed it to him. That never happened, but she was hoping she would eventually be able to give her milk to her child. And, you know, following his passing, a really remarkable thing happened. Now, this woman is a powerhouse. She is this incredible educator. She is this strong, amazing, inspiring woman. She teaches all over. She impacts so many people. And she ended up explaining to me how of all the things she had done in her life and of all the things she thought were the most important things of what her role was, what ended up happening was right after her baby passed away, there was another very, very premature baby in the NICU. And this baby seemed to be allergic to his mother's milk. He was allergic to all the formulas. He was starving to death. They couldn't give him enough to keep him growing. And it became a big crisis. And they approached her and they said, we know this is an incredibly big ask and a very sensitive and difficult thing, but is there any possibility you would allow us to try to give your milk to this baby? We're, we're trying different things. She agreed and this baby took her milk. So here she is grieving the loss of her newborn 
She is grieving her own trauma. And yet all of this milk that she had been pumping for her baby was now saving the life of another child. So not only did she turn over all of her milk to them, but then they said, we now need to really ask you something incredibly difficult. Are you willing to keep pumping for this baby? Are you willing to give us more milk to help sustain him? He's going to need milk for a few months in order to gain his strength. And so she did. And so she said to me, you know, if you asked me like where I make my impact, where I make a difference, where I should be using my talents and my abilities, what I was created for, all the things that we, you know, use to kind of identify ourselves. Am I an educator? Am I a speaker or whatever it is? She's like, never would I have thought that the most valuable thing I could contribute, that my most gifting, powerful role would be providing milk to a stranger's newborn. I'm saving a life. What I am doing is saving a life by giving milk. You know, who would have thought? So every time we have this idea to be flexible and switch roles, we are thrown into a lot of situations where we're like, ah, this is not my thing. I'm not the one cut out for this. This is definitely not what I'm supposed to be doing. And yet, there are times that the most impactful, meaningful, transformative, life-giving thing we can be doing is something that we never thought we were cut out for. We never thought we were capable even of. And that's exactly what we should be focused on. So we see this with all of the different roles that happen. Then we have, we are never stuck one way. We always have the ability to reinvent ourselves when truly committed. The woman who saved Moshe's life, Moses's life, is referred to as Batya. However, that is not how she's originally called. Originally, She's Bat Paro, the daughter of Paro. And yet it says she went to the Nile that morning when Moses was placed in the Nile and she sees him and saves his life, right? She went there to use it as a mikvah, to use it as a ritual bath, to immerse and to convert to Judaism. And so in doing so, we see that her name changes from the daughter of Paro to the daughter of God. That's a pretty um, impressive upgrade, right? Quite the raise, big promotion there, <laughs> going from the daughter of Paro to the daughter of God. Paro are the letters para, an evil mouth. I said for those who joined late that Pesach is Pesach, the speaking mouth, that redemption is about being able to speak, verbalize, say our truth, share our truth, have a voice, share that voice, right? So we have Paro, the one who enslaves us being the evil mouth, the one who fills us with negativity and toxicity and insecurity, who tells us we'll never escape, we'll never be, we'll never accomplish, we're not worthy, you know, we're, we have no value, we have no name, we have no identity, and yet she goes 
and she becomes the daughter of God. I was saying why with my friend who this talk is in the merit of his healing, that that's the power of the name, that a name was added, Rafael Shlomo Ben Miriam, right? So here we have, and interestingly enough, Miriam, mother of, Mo, uh, sister of Moshe, but Batya, who is the name we now refer to, means daughter of God. So here she had this transition coming from the royal palace of Paro, the, the seat of this negativity and this ruling force of evil, and she completely shifts and transforms her life and becomes daughter of God. From here, we have nothing is out of reach if we want it desperately enough, but we'll never know until we try. And it says that, you know, one of the explanations is that when Batya went to the Nile, she had like a maid with her and it uses the word amata, but that the other explanation for that is it can mean that like the arm extended and expanded many times over. And that when she reached out to get him, he wasn't in physical proximity. It wasn't going to be something rational or natural that she could reach out and grab him. And yet she saw his life needed to be saved. And so she did it. And we see that all the time when the super rational happens, when we break out of all physical limitations and boundaries because we need to, right? There's a child trapped under a car and somehow a group of people get together and they lift a car off a child, right? They, they lift up something that weighs tons and they get it off because they need to, because that baby's life needs to be saved. So if we think about it, it's not going to happen. We can start calculating, well, you know, this is how much I can lift. And even if there are 10 of us and we can each lift 100 pounds, so that's only 1,000 pounds and we're dealing with something so much heavier. Beyond. That when we see an opportunity, when we know something has to be done, when we recognize that that is the only option, we go for it and we believe that limitations and nature are not going to get in the way and the miraculous can happen. And we see this as well with the idea with Nachshon ben Aminadav, the one who first enters the sea. You can imagine, right? I was saying that going into the last days of Passover, we celebrate the splitting of the sea. So here we are, we've been escaping the Egyptians who are chasing behind us. We are desperate to leave our slavery. We leave, you know, running out with nothing. And then we hit the sea. I mean, talk about like cosmic joke, right? Like seriously, now, now we have a sea in our way. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? So we know we need to get beyond it. What is there to do? So it says that it wasn't so simple. It's not like, you know, we stepped in and boom, sea split for us. But that actually we walked up until our necks until the sea split. This wasn't a suicide move. We simply knew we had to go that direction. I do a whole nother class on the different approaches and opinions that happened when we hit the sea, not getting into that now, but that we walked in until the water hit our neck, led by Nachshin Ben Aminadav, 
and when the water, one more step, and naturally it would have covered his head. It was at that point that the sea split. And so even in Hebrew, to call somebody a nachshon is like to be an initiator, to be somebody who's going to take that risk, who's going to innovate and go forward, who's going to, you know, step into uncharted and unknown waters with the pure belief that that's the direction that needs to happen. That's where I'm headed. That's where I'm going. And I'm going to keep going until the sea splits. From here, we have... <laughs> ah, the true acts of kindness that we do are never forgotten, even if we are not aware of their impact. And she called his name Moses. We all refer to Moses as Moses, as Moshe, and yet that was not the name his mother gave him, but it was the name that Batya gave him. She saved his life. She did not know she was saving the leader, the future leader of the Jewish people, the future redeemer of the Jewish people, the one who would leave us out of Egypt. She saw a need. She saw a baby. She saw an opportunity. She saw something that had to be done. She reached out her arm and extended far beyond what it naturally would, should, could have. She saved this baby. She called him Moshe. Because it's from me, from the water I retrieved him. That's where his name comes from. Water, by the way, is always a symbol for holiness, for Torah, right? So he is taken in from this water, same water she was going to, to convert to Judaism, those transformative waters. And... The name she gives him is the name that sticks. Not only is it the name we refer to him by, it's the name God refers to him by. That that pure act of goodness, act of kindness is everlasting. Even if we are not aware that we ever had that interaction or that we ever made that impact. You know, just today, somebody shared with me, actually, uh, Chaya, when I was speaking to her, whose husband is fighting for his life and in need of our prayers and blessings. She was sharing with me an incident. She was our student in a post-high school program in, oh my gosh, 20 years ago. And she was sharing with me something that one of the teachers, who's a close friend of ours, said to her. And how she thinks about that every single day. Every day it impacts her life. Every day it makes an difference. Every day it inspires her. He He's in Israel, so I cannot share it with him until after. I don't know if he's going to remember having ever said it or if he had said it that made a difference or that it in any way affected her. But to this day, it makes a difference. So we never know when we smile at a complete stranger, when we throw out that extra compliment when we ask somebody how they're doing, the impact that could have, and the potential of actually saving a life that it could have, because we have no idea what people are going through, what they're struggling with, what they may need to hear, what our kind word or our kind act could have done, could have made that difference, and there are likely 
people that are sharing with, if it's their children or their grandchildren, you know, one day some random person at Rite Aid, you know, asked how I was doing or held the door open or told me I looked so nice and it changed me. It impacted me. It made all of the difference in the world. So we never know the impact it can have, but our impacts are everlasting. So we need to ensure that all of our interactions and our thought and our speech and everything that we do be uplifting and be positive and help be freeing from all the other enslavement that we all struggle with in different ways. All right, from here, it says, only when we see the possibility of what can be and what we are capable of doing, do we recognize how badly our situation needs to change. And the children of Israel groaned by reason of the bondage. And it says that until this point, there's a commentary by the Chedushia Rim that up until this point where we were literally groaning from the pain, from the challenge, we were actually fairly comfortable with it. It took hitting rock bottom to realize how low we had sunk, to realize how bad our situation, how difficult it was. And there really is that idea that if you've hit rock bottom, there's nowhere to go but up right? There's nowhere to go but to shift it and to move in the opposite direction. We can't go any lower. We can't hit any harder. We can't be dug any deeper. So turn it around, flip it around, because now there's only the direction which is away from that. So, um, you know, there's really this idea. It says, Specifically, it says, uh, when the first budding of their redemption began to emerge, they could begin to feel the depth of their suffering. That it wasn't actually until things started to show possibility and opportunity that they realized where they were at. And that that's for us, that sometimes now everything's been stripped away from us, that we have this opportunity What's important? What counts? Where should we be focusing? What's been extraneous to our life? What can we leave behind? Where do we make an impact? Where should we be focusing ourselves and, you know, our, our abilities? And it's a time to reshift and to refocus and to rethink and to realize you know, if anything now, what matters? Health, health, you know, what matters? Family, being with our loved ones, being in a position where we can be together. Nothing else, everything else is really external and superficial, but the core, core values that we all share in humanity. Okay, almost done here. When presented with the opportunity to do the right thing or help another. Do not let insecurity stand in the way of doing it. If the opportunity came your way, you are intended to step up, ready or not. Stay humble, but don't let humility prevent you from acting. All right, and it says, and Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Paro, that I should go to Pharaoh? And he said, this is your sign that I have sent you. 
and says that it's actually the Avne Azel says it's specifically Moses's humility that he asked the question, why me? If you're asking the question, why you? It should be you. It's the one who's not asking the question, who assumes, of course, it should be me, right? But the one who's not sure, why would you send me? How can I impact? What difference can I make? I'm sure there's somebody who is better, you know, and more prepared and more talented and more able and more fitting. Probably, possibly, it doesn't matter. You have the opportunity. You are in that situation. Therefore, you need to act. And I've shared this line many times, my favorite line about humility, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. If you have an opportunity to make a difference, to help somebody, to reach out, to do that kindness, it doesn't matter if somebody else could do it faster or bigger or better. Your opportunity, act on it. I'll never forget reading an article and then actually watching the little um, clip on the news. This guy had just been released from prison, literally just released, coming home from incarceration for whatever crime he had committed. I think, you know, armed robbery, whatever it was, right? So this guy had his past. He had his history. He had his baggage. He did not have um, the greatest credentials, but he was walking down the street right as he was, I imagine, getting home and he heard screaming and there had been like a pothole that had somehow been removed and a child, this was a sewage pothole, okay, like the grossest of the gross, had been uncovered and a child had fallen in and was going to drown in the waste. And without a second thought, this man jumped in and he saved the child's life and he rescued him. And he was being called a hero. And he was saying, you know, I was the only one there. I didn't do anything special. I did what needed to be done. The kid was dying. I heard the screaming. I was there. I acted. And it's so true. You know, would, would you go looking for an ex-con when you want your kid's life saved? Probably not. But it wasn't about that. Nobody was checking resumes. He was there. He saved this kid's life. And he is a hero, right? The past, one thing. In the moment, what he did, incredible and selfless and amazing and life-saving, and that is heroic. And to just end with, oh, by the way, great story here. Let me see. I can't read a thing without my glasses anymore. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Hold on. Ha! Huh. So great that you can make fonts. It's now 150% and I can read it. Okay. So great, great story here. It says, the story is told of two brothers, both disciples of the Rebbe of Lublin, who served as Hasidic Rebbe's. One enjoyed a large following, while the other had few disciples, said the second brother to the first. I don't understand. We're both disciples of our late master. We're both equally great in learning and piety. So why do so few Hasidim come to me, so few students, while so many seek you out? 
replied the other, I too ask the same question. Why do they come to me instead of you? But it seems, my brother, that in both of our cases, our question is also our answer. They don't come to you because you can't understand why they don't come to you. And they come to me because I can't understand why they come to me. And that's a story from Mayana Shaltora and a beautiful idea of, um, you know, of humility. And our final one, which, you know, really taps into everything we've been saying all along. We can say we're not strong enough. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough to do something, but we cannot say that God is not. And we have to remember we're never alone. And so it says that Moshe, Moses now has a further objection when it comes to speaking to Paro and says, but my God, I'm not a man of words. Also not yesterday, also not the day before, also not since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue, right? Moshe had a speech impediment. So here he's supposed to go and be the one to negotiate with Paro, who, by the way, Pera, right? The evil mouth. And we're all talking speech here is going to be our redeeming factor. It's going to be reliant on his words and his approach and his influence and how he brings us across as an orator to convince whether or not the Jewish people are going to be let free from our slavery. So God responds, who has made man's mouth? Who makes a man dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, God? So go, I will be your mouth and I will teach you what you should say. And that idea that ultimately, if we have that opportunity, if we're put in that situation, if we have an ability to influence, there's a reason we have to be flexible and switch roles, right? All these different ideas we spoke about. We have to use our voice. We have to know who we are. We have to use it to encourage and to inspire and to make a difference and to make a shift, even if we don't think we're the best or the most qualified person in the world. And those kind acts and those acts of goodness and transformation that we put out into the world are everlasting and are impactful and will always be remembered. And we just have to always remember where those abilities and where those opportunities come from. And just to end with a bumper sticker that I saw many years ago, which I love, it said, do not tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your God is. We may not have the ability or the strength or the means to deal with the situation, but we absolutely can't say that God can't. It's certainly not too big for him, even when we feel it's too big for us. And so when we recognize and remember that we are never alone, even if right now we are physically alone, even if we are quarantined lo alone, it says, when I sit in darkness, God is my light. We are never, ever truly alone. And if you are blessed and if you are fortunate to, enough to not be alone, reach out to someone who is. 